0: Sorry, Holy Trinity Clapham, from south of the river. My goodness, <laughs> Southwark Diocese <laughs> has ventured north. Amazing! Well, it's really good to see you. Welcome, welcome. Well, fantastic. Um, it is uh, a real pleasure. Glynn, come, come and come and join me here um, to welcome uh, Professor Glynn Harrison, um, who I am going to be bold enough to, to call a, describe as a friend. Absolutely, um, yeah. I serve my curacy. Um, Christchurch Clifton, where Glynn was church warden, and um, uh, it just, we, uh, I just remember fondly. And just, oh yeah, you, you, are you with me? I'll come forward. Uh, Glynn kind of uh, schooled me. I mean, was mentored by a number of people there, but uh, it was one or two late night whiskies after the evening service, where the curate's offering at the pulpit was kind of gently and lovingly dissected um, and uh, so I owe an awful lot Glyn to uh, and Louise his wife Joe and I we we were we've got very fond memories of Glyn there but uh, not only was he church warden and lay preacher in sort of church terms he's also served on general synod but he is as you've probably seen from the blurb that I've sent out uh, a professor emeritus former professor of psychiatry at Bristol University so he brings a, a deep Christian faith uh, and a committed Christian faith, a commitment to Jesus Christ, but also in an incredible amount of wisdom and experience and knowledge I- in the realm of science, where much of um, the sort of research and so on is being, uh, I say, slightly sort of flavoured, doctored, repressed. Uh, and I think Glenn's passion is that we should know the truth that allows us to flourish as human beings. Uh, to that end, a um, uh, couple of books um, that Glenn's written, the... the the Big Ego Trip, which is uh, an autobiography. No, that's just a joke. <laughs> <laughs> that's
1: what uh, all my friends tell me. <laughs> you wrote an autobiography, Finding true yeah.
0: significance in a culture of self-esteem, which I, I thoroughly recommend. But actually, tonight, and uh, Glenn's bought a, a few copies of his latest book, A Better Story, God, Sex, and Human Flourishing. And that, in a sense, is the topic for tonight. God, sex, and human flourishing. Uh, I think without further ado, Glenn, I'm, I'd love to pray with you for you and then hand over to you. Father, thank you Mm. for uh, your goodness, your love, your grace poured out to us. We thank you so much for the opportunity tonight to kind of sit at the feet of uh, Glyn and we pray that you would release him to bring forth uh, your grace and your truth. Mm -hmm. We read John's Gospel, Jesus, full of grace and truth. We follow Jesus, we seek to be those known, mm. to be full of grace and truth. So uh, release Glyn tonight to equip and inspire and challenge and encourage us. In Jesus' name,
1: Amen. Amen. Tim, thank you so much. Um, these generous introductions, really. Uh, and I really don't recognize uh, that one um, at all. Uh, but it's, uh, it's great to be here, it was great to hear the, the sound of uh, champagne popping over there earlier on, made me feel straight immediately at home, especially as I, I really did think this place was called St Dionysius, after the god of wine, um, but, I, but <laughs> I discovered it, it is St D's, isn't it, or Dionys, St D and Dionys, yes, gosh, I can't be the only one that struggled with this, am I? Yeah. Um, Well, it's great to be here. I'm I'm conscious that uh, we're dealing with a kind of a tricky, contentious um, area. Uh, Potentially, it could take us in all kinds of directions. And one of the great burdens of being a speaker is someone comes up to you afterwards and says, but you didn 't say anything about you know, and it 's usually the same person who, if you 'd gone on a minute too long, would have would have come and said for you know thirty two minutes Vicka. you know so you, 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 tim isn 't it you 're always caught between uh, wanting to to cover stuff that you know are people the questions they 're bringing but but also within a reasonable time, but anyway, what what we 're going to do is i 'm not here with tablets of stone. To deliver them to you, I, I'd love to, to hear some of your thoughts and feedback and reactions and pushback, as well as as we as we think about this this whole area of the sexual revolution and what it means for uh, those of us who are committed Christians. And I think we need to start by acknowledging that uh, this whole issue, talking about our our being made sexual, it isn't an easy one for we Christians, to handle, is it? Um, I, I remember when I was um, uh, I was nine years old, I'm pretty sure I was nine, and I sensed that there was a word, a naughty word, uh, that may embarrass my grandmother, and i just heard it on the radio. So I, I said to her granny, I said, what does the word pregnant mean? You were wondering what word was coming though, weren't you? Just pregnant. And you know what she said? She said, I don't know. <laughs> and you're not that stupid when you're a kid, you know? And she'd given birth to my mother and her sister, and so I was pretty sure she did know what the word <laughs> pregnant meant. But it, it, it's a kind of an, an eye-opener uh, into the culture of shame and fear that surrounds this whole area and has done for centuries amongst we Christians, we find it really hard and I was part of a group recently we that were supposed to be talking about this we we found ourselves talking about the church deficit, you know anything but getting onto to the topic tonight um, and so like Many men and women, I, I grew up as a teenager, I went into puberty, I came alive sexually in shame and ignorance and fear. And of course, things are, are different now, aren't they? Slightly, sometimes. But how many of us here can honestly say that it was your family, your Christian family or your church where you learned about the essential goodness under God of your erotic longings. How many of us can really say that? I would wager not that many. And as the Catholic theologian Christopher West says, if talking about sex were were food, we've had people on the starvation diet. We put people on the starvation diet. Don't do sex, we're Christians. Or so it seems. Well, at the same time as I was questioning my poor grandmother in the mid-50s, over in the States, a man called Hugh Hefner <coughs> was launching the first ever mass market girly magazine, 1953. Do you know what he called it? Playboy. And Playboy revolutionized revolutionized the 50s. And looking back at that era, Hefner says one of the reasons he founded that magazine, one of the reasons I founded that magazine, he said, was because of the hurt and hypocrisy of my religious upbringing. He'd finished with the starvation diet. From now on, it was going to be fast food. And tell me, if you you give human beings the choice between starvation and fast food. What are they gonna choose? So, a revolution was born. A mighty sexual revolution that that developed in a way those early revolutionaries almost could never have imagined. Look at what happened, next slide, the rates Absolute numbers of divorces over the next couple of decades rocketed sixfold from the 50s. More interestingly, the numbers of people getting married went into a, sh- into a sharp decline. These are raw numbers in the UK. Marriage itself went into a prolonged, severe recession, especially amongst the poorest. Amongst the poorest in our land, amongst the most socially deprived areas. Marriage has virtually disappeared in some areas. As a result of these changes in many European countries today, nearly one-half of children are born outside of wedlock. Um, In the UK, by the age of 16, only 50% of children Will reach the age of 16 with both parents, both biological parents in the home. Only a half of kids get to 16 and both mum and dad still in the home or ever were in the home. Today, couples of the same sex can get married. And anyway, nobody's really sure what that word sex means anymore, are we? Gender fluidity all fluid. And in just, you know, the reality we're facing, friends, in just a few centuries, sorry, just a few decades, centuries-old, deeply-rooted Christian commitments about the meaning and nature of marriage, of family, of what it means to be human, what it means to flourish as a human being in this area, have been effectively deconstructed and the reality you and I have to face is that most people out there would say good riddance good riddance and you know those of us who who kind of hold to those old convictions set out in those old manuscripts we call our bible uh, we've kind of been hoping that if we keep our heads down long enough the whole wretched business hopefully We'll go away. We'll keep on preaching the gospel, the gospel. And we won't get embroiled in this stuff. And hopefully we'll wake up and it's all been a, a bad dream. But it doesn't go away. It won't go away. We sit here like King Canute, but the waves just keep on coming, don't they? And I'm telling Christian apologists, when I go out for dinner, if I people find out I'm a Christian, the first question they not asked is, well, tell me about the fine-tuning of the universe arguments for the existence of God. They say, what about gay marriage? What do you Christians think about gay marriage? And we don't have the apologetic resources. We don't have the role models, the apologists capable of winning hearts as well as minds. We've got some mind people out there, but who's winning hearts? So how do we begin to... to to get to grips with this momentous social and cultural revolution in which you and I tonight are immersed. Well, here's what we're going to do tonight. Just two things. First, we're going to attempt some kind of analysis of of this cultural shift. It's going to be superficial. It's going to raise lots of questions, but we'll make a start. And then having done that, we're going to ask ourselves, well, do do we have a better story of our own to tell? And more importantly, if so, what is it? So let's begin with some analysis, shall we? What's the secret of this revolution's power? That's what I find myself asking. You know, the political theorist, Joseph Nye, he talks about hard power, and soft power hard power is getting what you want through coercion you send in the troops soft power is the ability to get what you want using attraction and uh, there are plenty of uh, there's plenty of hard power deployed by the by the sexual revolutionaries isn't there you you post on your facebook some conservative view about gay marriage, or if your daughter posts something, teenager, watch her friends unfriending her. That's a deeply coercive, kind of hard power. Or you say something and, and, and on Twitter, and you wait for the Twitter mob to be down on you. You'll experience hard power, and, and because of the strength of that, because it hurts so much, we, we kind of go to, to war with this what's called the culture wars, and we try and make better arguments. But, but I think we've missed the real secret of this revolution. It's not hard power. It's soft power. Its ability to make its ideas, its way of life, its vision of humanity attractive. Let's look at this in, in three areas. An attractive ideology, a compelling moral vision, and an inspiring story. So let's take the first one. Attractive new ideologies, part of the soft power, the revolution. The revolution offered some great new thoughts about what it means to be a human being, to be you. And we all want to know who we are. It's one of the most profound questions we will ever ask in our lives. What is my identity? And the sexual revolution answered that question with what has come to be called expressive individualism. It it was a term coined by a sociologist, Bella, Robert Bella, a few decades ago. But it's kind of caught on, expressive individualism says that you need to break free of externally imposed authority and tradition and wisdoms and look inside yourself to find the answer to the question of who you are. Be who you are from within. Express what you discover within. Be authentic and, and this is a, a picture of, of what you could call the unencumbered self, the unburdened self, the self uncluttered with what's gone before. Tradition, authority, dogma, clergy, vicars, church, rules, regulations, shame, grandmothers who don't know what the word pregnant means. <laughs> Set free from that to be truly who you are and so you claim the right to define yourself you don't listen to others you say who you are in fact if reality gets in your way you redefine reality as well and so powerful is this ideology in today's culture that 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 The term, I identify as, is kind of one of the cultural icons. It's one of the great phrases of I I identify as. I may be a 67-year-old man, but I identify as a little girl, as reportedly did a Canadian recently. So, a compelling ideology but also a, a different moral vision. And, and I think this is what, what caught us off guard perhaps more than anything else. You see, as Christians, we, we used to occupy moral high ground. It's a place we live, isn't it? We've got the rules, we've got the commandments, we've got the law. It's our territory. And so when the revolution came along, we expected to be able to, we thought it'd be business as usual. We portray our opponents as debauched, moral anarchists. But instead, the sexual revolutionaries cast a positive vision, a moral vision that conveyed a kind of goodness. What's the goodness, you say The goodness of being real, being authentic, just being honest about yourself and you you stick with your granny if you want and that world of shame but i'm being who i am and when i'm who i am i discover i discover freedom flourishing fairness and it casts us as the immoral the little people who like beating down the be- the other little people the excluders, the bigots. People who don't like the ones who don't fit your little paradigm. Let me give you an example of how this this kind of moral quest works. Take a picture like this. Typical picture on a, say, gay pride marriage. And this. These kind of pictures, to the traditional Christian mind... um, are, are, an, are an image of debauchery, moral decadence. Uh, and so we respond with, we wrinkle our noses, we talk about AIDS, we talk about God's law. We have another seminar on pornography. People aren't listening to that, to that kind of language from us today. Images like this portray moral, not necessarily no, go back, portray moral purpose. The virtue of authenticity. The saying, you Christians continue in your hypocritical shame culture. If you like, this is who we are. And in case you missed it, we're happy. Freedom, flourishing, and fairness to the little people. Inclusive, diverse, vibrant. And so you see, you you take this compelling moral vision of authenticity and this attractive ideology of of expressive individualism and weave them together and you make a great story of them, a story of freedom, courage, being real and you've got a revolution on your hands. And the revolution has a big, big story of freedom from people like us. A big story. And it's got smaller stories as well of individual courage and authenticity. Harvey Milk, rugby player who comes out gay for the first time. The, the single mums who in the past were beaten down or put into those Magdalen laundry asylums. And their kids adopted away in Ireland, if you've seen the film... Stories like that of freedom. So it's got a big story. It's got the little stories. And it's got great storytellers. scriptwriters, producers, directors, actors. Who put this together. And they don't just put words together. They show us images. And they give us narrative. <laughs> And they capture our hearts because there's something about the brain and the way it's wired that comes alive with a story. Witness Jesus of Nazareth, who knew that. And in songs of love and romance, as well as films and rom-coms and sitcoms, we make the rules. We make ourselves, slide please, next slide, Go on one, on one, I am my own experiment. I am my own work of art, Madonna. And how did we respond to these great stories? We responded with facts. Oh, and a pornography seminar. (laughs) It's all we ever do in churches in this area. I get, I'm always asked to do a pornography seminar, I say, what, just help me understand the series in which this seminar plays its part. <laughs> no, there isn't one, there's never one. I say, I'm not coming, I don't do it anymore. Because it plays into that old narrative that we're a people who know what we're against, but we don't know what we're for. No idea what we're for, we've been crushed by the strength of the story of this great revolution. And what did the Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor say? He said, you can't respond to a great story just with facts. You've got to tell a different story, a better story. And there's the challenge, do we have one? what is it right we're going to break for a minute you want to go back a slide now Catherine thank you um, that's the question and I'd love if you could if, if you're in a natural group there but just in a, a two or a three just have a little buzz around that and just be honest authentic real <laughs> how am I feeling right now